Well, it's good to be um, spending these six weeks looking at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, I was thinking the other day of Elijah the prophet, and um, when he was confronted by Jezebel, he discovered the uh, weakness of his own uh, fortitude and put his tail between his legs and ran, basically, uh, after the Mount Carmel episode. But it's interesting where he was headed for. He went to Mount Sinai. Very interesting, isn't it? Um, life requires a lot of us, and often it finds us out. Where do we go? We need to go back to the basis of the covenant. That's what Elijah was doing, I think. He was going back to where it all started, where God spoke to Moses, and he said, I've got to go there. I want to know what this is all about, and I want the sustenance that comes from that place. And uh, you and I are probably finding out in various ways, both in our culture and in our persons, uh, the limits of our own resistance and the difficulties that of uh, living in this world. Uh, where do we go? Well, we need to go back to the very fountainhead of our covenant, which is the cross. Uh, this is the blood of the covenant that, uh, by which we live. So I trust that you're finding it that way, that it's uh, just wonderful to go back to the roots from which we spring and uh, which, as we shall eventually see, is going to be the subject of eternal praise. Um, there can't be anything more important than to know that we live in God's world and that he always does what is right uh, for lack of that two pieces of information. There is a God who made us. And secondly, God is always doing what is right for lack of those two pieces of information, uh, we struggle in life, we begin to fall apart as a community uh, and we don't have a hope for our future. That's uh, quite a dangerous place we are in uh, when that takes place. Without all of these things, without the fountainhead of our covenant, our life is meaningless, chaotic and hopeless. So well may we return to our roots. The death of Jesus on a cross has revealed, as we saw last week, how desperately wrong we all are when we imagine we're in control. Um, it's not just that we break the Ten Commandments. Of course, that's the evidence of our sin. But the source of our sin is that we don't want to have God in our thinking. That's why God gives us up to these other things. Um, so the real problem is we just don't want to have God in our thinking, which describes our present age very, very well. And um, uh, very much so and determinately so, as uh, seen right in our present uh, movements of our society. Um, so the death on a cross reveals how desperately wrong we are when we're in control, which is what Caiaphas was trying to be, what Pilate was trying to be in his rough political way, um, and what uh, Israel was about, and of course what all the nations are about, trying to be in control. But the same event happens precisely according to God's purpose. What a wonderful sermon Acts 2 is. How on earth does a guy get to preach a sermon like that? Um, it's a bit like um, a joke I heard from Billy Graham's former 
um, press secretary, um, uh, he describes how Moses was uh, telling um, Aaron what he was going to do when he got to the Red Sea. He says, we're going to you know, bang, the, bang the water, it's all going to come apart and it's, um, we're all going to walk through and then after we got through, Israel's going to follow us and they're all going to get drowned. And um, Aaron's got his chin on the sand and he says, man, if you can pull that off, I'll get you 40 pages in the Old Testament. <laughs> Spoken like a true press secretary. <laughs> well, um, the uh, Paul, uh, sorry, Peter says on the day of Pentecost, God has done all this exactly according to his own plan and purpose. He's pulled it off. So he gets quite some pages in the New Testament. Uh, I'm pardon that uh, rather lightheartedness, but I, I just hope we can see the actual event. What is it like to be Peter and be announcing these things? They've watched all this happen. They've seen what God's done. And they're announcing that not just the resurrection, but the cross was the work of God. You killed him according to the determined plan and foreknowledge of God. God pulled the whole thing off. He got it done. And we're here to announce that something, the world's changed uh, because of this event. Uh, so that's uh, quite, a, quite a day when he preaches and he shows how wonderfully right God is in justifying himself and in so doing, justifying us. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, we can get things uh, wrong um, because uh, we, we look at things uh, according to our own point of view and and of course we look at the cross and we think very quickly we move from the cross to justification and what we mean by that is justification of me. Uh, but we need, first of all, in order to have some cogency to that, that is it's going to hold together under pressure, uh, some, some mental you know, uh, toughness to it, you have to talk about God justifying himself before he justifies us. If God's not satisfied, you and I are never going to be. Can you, can you follow that? It's very, very important that uh, God justifies himself and so confident justifies us. Uh, God, in fact, is very concerned about the honour of his own name. You probably remember verses like Ezekiel 36, 16. Uh, I love these verses. I think they just go to the heart of so much. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. When the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath on them for them, for the blood that they had shed in the land of, and the land of the idols which, with which they defiled it. And I scattered them amongst the nations and they were dispersed through the countries. There's God's wrath against his own people. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. Profaned is the opposite of making holy. They desacralized God's name. How come? Well, they'd been saying for, for decades, for, for millenniums, um, God looks after us, God looks after us, and now God's not looking after them. 
God's a lame God. God doesn't like it. His name's being defamed. It's interesting, isn't it? What defames God's name? They profaned my holy name. Not by their sins now, but by the fact that God can't look after them. These are the people of the Lord, and yet they go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned amongst the nations. And therefore, says the Lord, it's not for your sake I'm going to do this, which you've profaned amongst the nations to which you came, and I'll vindicate the holiness of my great name. Do you see what's going on here? God is interested for the, for the holiness of his name. His people have just shown that they're abominable because he sends them his own son and they kill him. And, uh, and now what's going to happen? Well, it's a good question, isn't it? In earlier days, he sent them to captivity in a horrific uh, captivity. So the miracle of God getting everything right is, is not only uh, in the first, announced by Peter in the first century, it's being announced right now, uh, right across the world. The miracle of God getting everything right is continuing as the church announces this gospel. God is revealing his righteousness. You remember Romans 1.18, which we need to come to later on, not straight away, but later on, where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God. First of all, it's the power of God. Here's how God really flexes his muscles, if you like, for the salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew and first to the Greek, because this is why it's the power of God and why I'm not ashamed of it, because it's the righteousness of God is being revealed. And the theologians and commentators uh, talk about whose righteousness is being revealed here. Uh, Is it God's righteousness being revealed or is it justification being revealed because it goes on and says from faith for faith as it's written the righteous shall live by faith so it's something you receive. A similar kind of terminology occurs in chapter 3 we'll come to later on. And uh, I very much like uh, one of the commentaries I've got at home written by the uh, New Testament lecturer in Melbourne Um, his name just escapes me at the moment but he said there's five different ways in which righteousness is used uh, and you have to look at the context and we'll come to them later on Uh, and he says it's not impossible that Paul has both meanings in mind now I like that because if you spend a half an hour arguing about whether this is a righteousness of God or righteousness he gives to us uh, you haven't really achieved anything because at the end of the day we know it's both from other texts, so why couldn't he even put the both meanings into one text? And that's the, re- that's the argument that uh, this writer uh, puts forward. So I'm going to take it in that way. God's revealing his righteousness to us. It's important that we know that God gets it right. If he can't get the world right, you and I have got Buckley's. It's precisely because the world has come to the conclusion that God can't manage his world that they're taking over and they're trying to bring it into order. Regime after regime, century after century, a new attempt to get it into order. It's important that we've got a message that actually goes out and says, God gets it right. And brothers and sisters, you and I have got the job of announcing that. Do you see how this is the power of God? 
And it's very important. If we ask the question, what's God doing about all the evil in the world? Here's the answer. God's looked at it. Boy, he's experienced it firsthand. He summed it up and he's dealt with it, all of it, including what you and I have done. And he's made the decisive move that changes the future. Do you see why I've called this overall heading? When mankind meets its maker. We've been assessed and found wanting. But that's not the end of the story. It's misleading to look at the cross from a human point of view. Remember Paul has made the conclusion that not to look at it that way any longer, though we once looked at Jesus as from a human point of view. We don't look at him any longer that way. What happened when Saul of Tarsus looked at Jesus from a human point of view? Well, he was there uh, uh, supervising or watching on or looking after the coach while Stephen was getting killed. And effectively he was there when Jesus was killed because it's all part of the same bundle. Uh, That's what happens when you look at Jesus from a human point of view. You're trying to bring him under your control and use Jesus for your purposes. It's not going to fit. He doesn't belong there. We are accustomed to reactions. For example, the way we deal with tragedy of various kinds and it's happening constantly on television screens. We are accustomed to reactions of outrage and pity when tragic things happen. Um, it's just it's constant, isn't it? I mean, you, you can almost um, uh, wipe off the first quarter of an hour of the news uh, because it's all catastrophes and uh, outrage and pity. Look at this, poor people, and they interview all the people that are crying, and which I find objectionable. I don't want to be, um, be a bystander when somebody else is pouring their heart out. Um, do you, do you, I mean, we, we're getting used to this outrage and pity kind of approach to terrible things happening and we can't come at Jesus and say oh poor Jesus look at he's up there on the cross and, and he's done so much for me I'll have to sort of be nice to him do you know what I mean that's, that's a human point of view we need to understand uh, the, what the prophecies say what the gospels say what the apostles say after the gospels uh, because only God knows what the cross is about you and I will get it all wrong um, neither of these reactions suit what happens to Jesus. So what's this today's study about is to look at, first of all, what the Gospels say about this event, that this terrible event that actually happens to Jesus. But then again, we find out it's what God does with Jesus and what Jesus himself is about. We'll look at the Gospels and then we'll look at the Apostles. And if I don't get as far as the Apostles today, that doesn't bother me because uh, I've got six weeks, I'll just... Uh, drop one of the other studies and take two weeks on one, but we'll see how far we get. I just don't want to rush, that's all. So, first of all, the Gospels. How will God make everything right? We're not just talking about God being prissy and doing the right thing himself and saying, look what a good boy am I, pardon the casual reference, but we're not just talking about God showing that he is righteous. We're talking about God getting his creation right. He's made this thing. He's responsible for it. Not only that, he's guaranteed it's going to have an outcome. What's he going to do? Well, first of all, uh, Joseph gets to hear when his wife is pregnant and he's worried about that. Jesus says, it's all right, Peter, uh, sorry, Joseph, this is all from me. 
This uh, child of yours is going to save his people from their sins. God doesn't waste any time getting down to business, does he? He's going to save his people from his sins. What about that? What a thing to have in mind about your own kid. What's Joseph think? Well, my son's going to be a great teacher. He's really going to get the nation around him and he's going to show them how to live and then they'll all get it right and we'll be a great nation again and we'll be all looking for our Messiah and... I don't know what Joseph really thought. He don't hear anything about him, do we? But Joseph hears that he'll save his people from their sins. It must be more than just teaching. Better ways to live. And when Jesus begins to teach in John 8, he's talking about people who think that they've got their life together, they're in charge. The people, you know, who object to being called as slaves because they say, Abram's our father, we're not in slavery to anybody. And Jesus has to explain to them, he said, anybody who commits a sin is a slave of sin. That's how it is, isn't it? We don't just sin. You've got it on your back. Uh, and then you're having to do things to compensate. It's called self-justification. And it comes out in words, it comes out in actions, it comes out in a whole life. A whole life can be nothing more than self-justification. A whole nation's history can be nothing else than self-justification. It's a powerful thing, self-justification, isn't it? It killed Jesus. That's how bad self-justification is. And um, so uh, it must mean more than just teaching better ways to live. There's a weight we're carrying, a slavery actually, Jesus talks about here, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Slave both by habit, of course, but slave also because he's carrying it, unless it can be taken off somehow or another. Jesus teaches and heals a remarkable, a remarkable time uh, just to be there and to watch it happening and to be part of the, the ethos would have been just remarkable. You know, you wouldn't mind, you know, getting a time machine and sharing a few weeks of those three years, would you? Incredible to see what Jesus was doing. No wonder people got out of their houses and followed him across the hills. But Jesus, from quite early in the piece, uh, talks about going to Jerusalem and being killed there. And there's various references, I think it's in the Luke, where he says Jesus set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. So from quite early in the piece, he he knows what he's, going to, he's about and he's, he begins to teach his apostles what he's going to be about. Uh, that comes subsequent to Peter confessing that he's the Christ. He lets the people understand that he's the Christ and as soon as that's clear, at least to Peter, then he begins to teach them what it means to be the Christ. He's going to kill, be killed in Jerusalem. He says he's going to give his life a ransom for many. Ransom is the word lutron. And the word for redeem is apolutrosis. Uh, so you've got the word lutron mixed in the middle there. So ransom and redeeming are all the same thing. Um, a ransom ought to pay to redeem somebody. And um, he says, I've come to pay a price to redeem uh, slaves. That's interesting at the very time that Jesus is explaining that. The reason he's explaining it is because James and John are having a, a fight about not, not fight amongst themselves, but the two of them want to have place on the left and right of Jesus in the kingdom. It just shows the different agendas, doesn't it? Uh, what the Son of God is about, it shows up most 
profoundly when you compare it with what we're about. We're about where we stand in the stack. <laughs> and Jesus is about what he's going to do for us. It's just a different world, totally. Um, he's come to give his life a ransom for many. In other words, he knows we're slaves. Um, I just love, um, I had to write a song about Jesus one time and one of the verses goes like this. It was he who saw life's meaning clearly, was not fooled or swayed by what he saw, did no wrong nor restlessly accused us, saw that we were hiding from our sins. All the Father's love was then released, waiting not till all men understood. Jesus bore the wrongness of our blame and led us to his Father, free of shame. I don't care who wrote those, that's fantastic. Amazing, isn't it? One man just looks straight through all the fuss and nonsense we get about in life, and he sees it, he just can see it, right in front of him with his own disciples. He says, these guys are just playing games. I've come to give my life a ransom for many. Get with it. What do you really need? So we carry a weight with our slavery and it needs to be lifted. And um, Jesus says he comes to pay a price to redeem slaves. In fact, he's doing what its uh, Old Testament psalm says, uh, what shall a man... Oh, in fact, I can't remember the actual words. Psalm 49... 7 to 9, we're just saying along the way about how life is. He says, what man can give a, no man can give a, a price for his own life. Psalm 49, 7 to 9. Truly, no man can ransom another. You can't do anything. I mean, that's very clear, isn't it? What can you do for your own kids? Many of us are parents here. What can you do for your own kids? You can't do anything to save them. You can teach them all you like. You can be the best example you could be. But you can't ransom them. Truly no one can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. And Jesus says, I'm going to do that. I'm glad he's my older brother. His life will be a ransom to set us free from our slavery. And if we don't let him pay what we owe, we'll die. You can have a look at that reference if you like. Um, if you, um, if you uh, uh, love the world, you'll forfeit your own soul. If you're ashamed of me, you'll forfeit your own soul. That's the substance of it. In other words, you've got two choices, Jesus or a lost soul. That's what he's saying. Offending God is fatal. And we've done it. Who can stand, as Nahum says, or Psalm 76 says, who can stand if God's anger is aroused? Jesus knows the real situation. We play games and we think, um, you know, like the old parable says, give me time enough and I'll pay all the bill. And the figures just don't stack up. And God just called Christ here, looks at the situation and says, playing games, mate, 
You're just going to have me or you're lost. That's it. Uh, Jesus knows as he goes along, he uses phrases like the two that I've put there. He knows that he's God's suffering servant because uh, it's just worthwhile having a look at Matthew 8, 16 and 17. Um, so we can just hear our Lord say it. Matthew 8, 16 and 17. He says, uh, uh, That evening they brought to him Jesus many that were oppressed by demons and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. And this was to fulfil what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases, which is the Septuagint translation of he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, which we more familiarly know from the Hebrew that's in our Old Testament in Isaiah 53. That's one of the servant songs. Jesus, uh, uh, that's said about Jesus, I'm sorry, not of Jesus by Jesus himself, but Jesus himself uses the next one, um, when he says um, he will be numbered with the transgressors and here that's Luke 22:37. and again it's worthwhile just looking at it letting it sink into us Luke 22 and verse 37 um, I tell you this scripture must be fulfilled in me he is our Lord himself and he of himself he quotes Isaiah 53 and he was numbered with the transgressors for what was written about me has its fulfilment. Can't be clearer. Jesus understands that he is the figure of Isaiah 53. He will give his life a ransom for many. Um, uh, and that also means, of course, that at the end of the Isaiah 53 section, which is one of the servant songs, the Lord makes his life a guilt offering. He knows that that will be the end of all the killed lambs where a person would put their hands on the hand of the lamb and um, then, uh, as it were, symbolic transferring their guilt and their sins to the the lamb and slit its throat. And he's effectively saying, I'm that guilt offering. And when the time comes, Jesus knows He's got his eyes open, not like us with them half closed. Uh, He's got his eyes open and he says to his father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. Now, many of us here will be familiar with with a, a way of looking at this, which says that Jesus was afraid that he was going to die in the in the garden. Uh, And so he's asking, Lord, I don't want to drink the cup of dying in the garden. because Jesus made it so clear that he knew he was going to do this, how could he change his mind? Uh, And that makes sense from many points of view, except the word cup always refers to wrath or blessing, a cup of blessing or a cup of wrath. That's the way the terminology flows. And so its most natural understanding would be a cup of wrath that he's about to drink. Uh, Whatever you come up with doesn't really matter because either way Jesus is afraid he'll die in the garden, so he doesn't know whether he's going to die in the garden or not, and he asks the Lord that it won't happen. So, do you I mean you've still got to confuse Jesus? Otherwise, why does he ask the Lord? Nevertheless, not your will, but mine be done. Um, so, uh, what you have to say is, here's a man uh, so um, overwrought with the prospect of what is happening to him. Already, he's sweating great drops of blood. 
And if he wasn't supported by angels, he might have died there. And it was you and me that caused that. And it was the wrath of God on what was happening to him that was causing that. That's my understanding of it. He's certainly bearing the griefs of others. Um, He's numbered with the transgressors, as the uh, servant song says, and his life is to be a guilt offering. This term describes judgments from God on sinners. You can look that up in Psalm 75, Isaiah 51 and Jeremiah 25, where this term is used of um, of, uh, bearing wrath. And the terror of it makes him sweat blood and he asks if there's another way. If in fact he is confused about, about whether he can really has to go through with this, I don't think that means there's a lack of resolution on Christ's part, not for a second, because he says, not my will, but you're done. But the terror of it and the reality, and this is what I want us to see, the reality of it is such that he does it for one reason only, not because it's logical, but because his father wants it. I think that's wonderful. And you can take it as you wish there. He doesn't flinch from his task, but he does reveal to us the horror of what's going to happen. Now, I mean, this is astonishing. On the way to the cross, Jesus says, don't weep for me. Now, he's actually bearing his load on the cross, or unless already it's been transferred to the other fellow. Um, but uh, uh, he says, don't weep for me. Now, what's going through his mind? He knows what's coming. And he says, don't weep for me. Well, this is just, I mean, we've just got to get the human side of this, don't we? We've got to see when we say that we, we were constrained by the love of Christ, which is another study to come, but what love are we talking about? That he can be thinking about others when he's heading towards his crisis. And he says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. He's already taught about what's going to happen if, if, and because Israel is not receiving him. And in 70 AD, he describes some of the events in actual uh, clear terms. And in fact, he makes prophecies that actually help some people escape to Petra instead of being crucified outside the walls of Jerusalem in 70 AD. It was an actual prophecy of kindness to help people who were Christians and believed in him to know what to do when they saw Jerusalem surrounded with armies. And so he's actually saying on his way to the cross, don't weep for me, weep for what's going to happen to you. Astonishing, isn't it? Uh, this is an astonishing... Uh, uh, he has in mind how awful it's going to be for anyone who doesn't believe in what he's doing. So here is the Lord. If can you can feel the, the dynamics, the human dynamics reaching out to you. This is the Son of God as a human being at the right hand of the Father. And can you hear his humanity calling out to you? Uh, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Look, look at what's going to happen to you if you don't listen to me. And if you don't receive what I've got here. And from his cross then, Jesus Christ, why have you forsaken me? Now here's the bottom line really of bearing sin, isn't it? Uh, Some say that hell is basically the absence of God. And that's just an attempt, I suppose, in our minds to come to terms with the fact that hell exists. But there we are, it's the absence of God. What is it like? What is this hell in which Christ is on the cross? 
where one who does nothing but what the Father shows him, when, uh, when he's already prayed that the, lo- that the love with which you've loved me from the foundation of the world may be within them and so forth in John 17. Uh, what's in his mind as he, um, as he's saying, why have you forsaken me? He is there and he's been made sin and he is bearing the wrath of God and he's not experiencing the love of God even though he's the love of God incarnate. And uh, we don't know, we cannot tell uh, what pains he had to bear. Uh, we're at a loss really, aren't we? But we might as well be honest about the, the actual statements that are there in the Bible and then the words that Jesus actually spoke and realise that the wrath of God is not a pretty place to be. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all and he has been wounded for our transgressions. That's the meaning of it from just those few texts that I've shown you this morning from, us, from, the, from the, uh, the Gospels themselves and from Jesus himself. That's what's actually happening. He's wounded for our transgressions. Now, as he dies, Jesus says it's finished. Hmm, what's finished? The suffering? What's he there for? He's there to bear the sins of the world. What's finished? He's there in order that the wrath of God might fall on him and not on us. So what's finished? The wrath of God on him and the wrath of God on us, right? Um, It's finished. Jesus is no victim He has done what he was given to do, what he wanted to do, and what we need. And through him, God has done what is right for him and for us. I am going to leave it there because I think it's going to be helpful to just um, have time to savour the, as it were, the preparation that the Lord gives to us and the actual event itself on the cross uh, and to let that uh, sit in our minds and to, in, if I may say so, to savour it. What do you do when life tumbles in? What do you do when your life's not all that it could be? And so forth. You go back to your roots. You go back to the source of the covenant. Do you remember Jesus saying uh, at the Last Supper, this is the blood of the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. And now the blood is shed. So what's established? The covenant is established. This is a great place to be, isn't it? This is the roots of the covenant itself. And uh, we run back there like Elijah did to Mount Mount Sinai. So we run to the cross and we say, here's where I stand and uh, here's where I'm going to live. Well, let's just pause there and um, have a a time to give thanks and to pray. Our dear Father, um, can such things be as we have announced? Um, The world looks at what is happening and as Jesus said, people's hearts fainting for fear for what is happening to the world. And sometimes our own hearts tremble as well and perhaps many times they complain. But Lord, here we have a saviour who does what is needed and who changes the whole situation. 
And we ask our fathers, we savour these things and we look forward to what we talk about next week with a justification that comes to us. If you not only get it right for you, you get it right for us too. And we're so grateful, Father, that we can hold our heads high in this world because our Saviour's died and because he's risen and because uh, we're at peace with you. Uh, Grant our Father that these may be the uh, confidences in our mind that we, together with all the apostles on the day of Pentecost, may boldly stand up and say, well, look what you've done. But on the other hand, look what God's done. And if you repent, you'll be forgiven. Oh, Father, we pray that these wonderful things may be in our minds constantly. And if the opportunity comes, we pray, Lord, especially these days, we pray that you'll give it uh, opportunities with friends and neighbours around that something of this may tumble through to them as well. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.